Welcome, David, to the Rising Executive Podcast. This is a podcast where we interview some of the best leaders in tech and startups. So welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And for those listening, uh, David is a marketing executive. He's previously been the CMO of Zignal Labs and Persado, and he's been a marketing leader at a number of different high growth companies in the past. Uh, so David, I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, so where I'd like to start is just talking about leadership, right? So uh, the, the the podcast that we host it's is really related to leadership executive development. So wanted to get a sense of how you would describe your personal leadership approach at the high growth companies that you've worked at in the past. Sure, um, it, it's it, I've had this question before, obviously, and and I I often consider it a bit of a trick question in a way because the reality is is that I think the the leadership style like the management style needs to vary with the situation, right? With the people you're involved with. Ultimately, we're talking about managing people to get things done. Um, and people are individuals. And in terms of, you know, teams that have reported to me, and certainly people I've reported to, there's all kinds of variation in terms of needs and what's most effective. So, uh, you know, the, the kind of dumb answer not to avoid what you're asking is, you know, what does my leadership style need to be, right? Some people are going to need more coaching, some are going to need more autonomy, some are going to need more specificity, etc. That said, um, you know, in any any place I've, I've um, been for, uh, you know, more than a year, uh, as opposed to say consulting gigs over the time, where I'm actually building a team, I do obviously tend to build a team that is towards my preference, my sort of management and leadership preference. And that preference really involves creating a team of people who, frankly, know more than I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at an age now where I'm not necessarily learning from the person I work from, work for, um, but I often find myself learning a heck of a lot from the people who work for me. And I do believe very much in that adage of, of, of hiring people who are smarter than yourself. Uh, marketing is, is often nowadays the skill sets described as this notion of the, the T-shaped T, T marketer. And the idea is if you, if you kind of graph skills from you know, corporate marketing and Marcom to product marketing and demand gen, sort of this wide spectrum on the x-axis. And then if you think about the Y, at least going down the negative, it forms like a T where you've got some sort of depth in a couple of areas, maybe at the center and on the sides you have less depth on the side. So I, I tend to build teams that... Um, know a lot more than I do, um, it's particularly about the things that I, I have less depth in. Um, and I tend to prefer people who appreciate autonomy, right? People who um, are going to be almost more like colleagues um, where we're sort of all together trying to get something done. And we kind of agree these are the objectives, these are the goals, what do you need? Great, go do it. And then I'm just you know happy to kind of uh, dig in from there. Yeah, you touched on a number of interesting points there. So I, I want to kind of start with what you just mentioned, which is autonomy. You like hiring great people and kind of letting them run autonomously as your colleagues. But what have you done in situations in the past where you've hired and someone's needed to be managed a bit more closely or they need a lot more support and they're not able to run as autonomously? How have you handled situations like that in the past? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you would, it depends on, on the nature of that need, right? If that, if that need for uh, greater support, when we can define what support means in this case, um, is coupled with the promise of, of return, then you provide what's needed. Whether that's, um, you know, something as trivial as saying, no, look, the format of what you're producing should look like this. And you're basically kind of sketching it out and saying like, you know, structure the data to look like this, you know, 
put it in this format. Give me seven slides, three bullets on each, cover these five topics, right? And sort of quick outline is something I think I, I become pretty good at um, sitting down with someone um, often nowadays, you know, virtually and coming up with the five or six things this presentation has to say and by what point it accomplishes what. And then you kind of sketch in those details and they fill it in. So that that's, you know, one of, of, of many ways you can provide additional support for someone. Um, of course, there's the other situation where someone is requiring more and more support and, you know, it, it, it may or may not be worth it, right? So there's, there's the sort of unfortunate quadrant of someone requiring a lot of support and not producing very well. Um, you know, when it gets to the sort of extreme edges of that box, um, you know, then you're looking at replacing the person. Yeah. And how often have you, just to be, you know, let's just ask you very straightforwardly, yeah. how often have you had to replace the person versus being able to support them to a point where they, and train them to a point where they can kind of run autonomously? Yeah. You know, um, I, I heard it said once, I think it was a recruiter told me years ago, like if, if, if two of every three hires you make work out, you're, you're doing well. Um, you know, I think my average is probably a little bit better than that. I'm probably around 75%. I, I think of, um, well, maybe not, not not people I've hired, but say people who've worked for me, whether, um, you know, they're, they're there before I got there, sort of a, a legacy uh, employee or uh, someone I brought on, I would say probably 75% um, of the time it's, it's, it's worked out to the point there, you know, at least reasonably good B performer, if not an A or A+. Plus. Um, in the other 25% of the time, Obviously, you, you you try to reach accommodations with the person, whether it's need for support. Um, in many cases, what I have found is sort of in, in, in my segment, which is, I mean, you know, high-tech startups, things like that, you're not necessarily dealing with people who, who lack skills or who lack capability. Um, what I often find, um, and this also can vary, you know, depending upon the age of the person, maturity level, where they're at kind of in life, is just sort of varying degrees of, of willingness um, and sort of matters of, of cultural fit, right? Is, is this position really good for that person? And, you know, that is largely based on does this person want to be here, right? Whether it's this product, this team, this time, doing these things that are, are, are in their domain. Um, and as, as long as you can find a pretty good fit there, my experience, right? Where they actually, yeah, I, I, there's a reason I'm here. I want to be here. I want to get this stuff done. I like whatever. I like the product. I like the space. I like what I'm doing. I like my peers, what have you. There's some basis for the person just kind of digging where they're at. And there's, again, that basic skill set is, is almost always there. Um, I, I think in that case, to say oh, that 25% where it kind of didn't work out, um, you know, half 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 of those can be recovered half of those with work um uh you can get to the point where they actually become kind of in that you know good enough acceptable camp yeah no that that was great and i appreciate that david because i think that's a really interesting way to think about it is is the person not performing because of a skill issue is it that they're just not in the right role it's like important to kind of dig into why that wh why the performance isn't there. And then I feel like you take it from there, but that was great. And so do you, I do want to transition a little bit. I feel like looking at your background, you have so, a number of very interesting executive roles that you've held at, at a number of high growth companies. And I would love to kind of dig into that experience a bit. So um, what do you think is the, the biggest challenge you face in your career at any high growth company? Um, and what did you learn from it? I'd love to just kind of keep that question general and whatever comes to mind, feel free to, to, we can dig in there. Yeah. I mean, challenges, um, <laughs> 
you almost have to divide up different sort of domains of challenges. I mean, the first thing that it triggered in my head when you said that, um, and understand that, you know, my, my background is, is, you know, 85, 90% startups. Um, in many cases, companies sort of, um, exploring a new, a new category, a new way of doing something, certainly, um, a high novelty factor, uh, in the companies I've been involved with, right. Versus the market, certainly the market today, um, is performance against promise versus funding, right. So any, any high growth, um, you know, fast moving startup technology in a space. I mean, you know, there's either no competitors, in which case, why is that? And, you know, that's its own problem. Or more likely, there are competitors. There's one or two. And, you know, suddenly you move it along and you find yourself in a six or nine month period and a whole bunch of people come out of the woodwork, right? So now you got to compete with those people. And it goes from no one wants to talk to us to so to they all want to talk to us and other people. And how do we position ourselves and in, in people's awareness that way? Um, you know, making sure the constituencies are all attended to and expectations are met across those different constituencies. So constituencies ranging from, you know, overtly the most important, um, your, your boss, uh, your investors, um, your peers, obviously your customers are key. Uh, and then all those constituencies that influence your customers, the analysts and journalists who cover you, the people who run trade shows, partners in many cases, and of course, other people in the company and the people that are your direct charge. All, all of these, I mean, this is, this is largely... I'm going to say what marketing management is. I, I think I could say maybe what management is, is that sort of constituency balancing and then making sure we're all on the same page in terms of what is this product? What is this marketing initiative? What is this plan? What is this endeavor of the next one, two, three, four, eight quarters actually going to do against the promise versus the funding it's been granted? And by funding, I can mean that literally like the cash at a sort of VC level, but can also be the funding in terms of you know, how much time you have to reach certain marketing milestones, like when are we going to be known in the press? When are we going to have sufficient leads? When are we going to have a sufficient channel or sufficient partner or sufficient revenues, right? However you want to measure that. Um, but then there's also funding of sort of other expectations, right? Like what is, what is the commitment within the company? You know, the sort of um, cross-functional commitments, right? Marketing is, is in between selling and product in, in, in many regards, like it, it, it can sort of be a very strong function. It can be a very weak function and it, it very much depends on its relationship. So, you know, is marketing viewed as like that, that thing that group over there does in specific moments or does everyone kind of think of themselves sort of as in marketing? So these all go to how much is being quote unquote invested in, in what marketing, what I'm managing um, is being, it, it, it exists and what are the expectations and how do you all manage that so that all these different people are perceiving that we are making progress at the appropriate speed in the appropriate way? Yeah, I love that. So it's about aligning on expectations across the organization, across stakeholders, and sort of managing progress in a very sort of direct and clear way. But I guess the follow up I have to is how do you, who do you think is responsible for that kind of alignment across the organization? Did you in your career take it upon yourself? to go directly to cross-functional stakeholders? Is it the executive team? Is it the CEO? Like who's really responsible for driving expectations and alignment across the organization? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, eat or be eaten, right? I mean, at a certain point in your career, you realize, especially in marketing, um, you have to take responsibility for that. If others are, are also taking responsibility for that, that's, that's upside, right? But 
you know, I, I am always very proactive and this, this starts before I'm working at a company, right? When I, when I first need a company, when I first interviewing for a job, you're, you're beginning a conversation around like, well, what do you need for marketing? What do you think is required? How long do you think it's going to take? Huh, that's interesting. Here's my experiences that kind of map to that, that kind of don't map that. I think this, I think that. So there's really almost underpinning most conversations you have with most people, the sort of expectation management. It's not like a one and be done kind of thing. It's, it's, it's something that requires continual care and feeding. I think what's, what's different about me, say, as, as a manager, I, I, my, my early 30s, literally 30, 31, um, my first um, VP marketing job where I was like, managing the whole function and, and, and um, yeah, I had managed a little bit before that, but um, until now, I'm a little bit older than that, um, you know, my, my sort of sense of that scope of responsibility has grown and my appreciation for it, right? It's, it's, um, it's, if you look at that as a chore, like, well, why do I have to explain what I'm doing, right? If your attitude is, you know, they hired me because I'm the expert, why don't they listen to me? Um, it, everyone thinks they know market, they know marketing, uh, you know, and everyone needs to know how they fit into the puzzle. So it's, it's, it's either a team thing or it isn't. So I have moved from someone who maybe begrudgingly did that to someone who really kind of relishes making sure everybody, every team, certainly my boss, certainly people work for me, but then my peers and, and, and the functions I'm working with my, my sort of peer functions, whether it's engineering or sales critically, finance critically, um, that we're all sort of in cahoots on, on what we're trying to do um, for the company's marketing with a capital M, meaning not just the marketing team, but the, the marketing that the, the company affects in the, in the marketplace. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And one thing you mentioned is you like this, doing this expectation set, setting at the onset, right? Like when you're interviewing for roles and talking to founders and CEOs about what they need for marketing – so what advice would you give to founders, CEOs, or other just leaders that need to hire a marketing leader but aren't marketing experts themselves? Like what are the questions they should be asking and what are the insights they should be digging well, towards? I mean, there's a lot of ways to ask that question, but why don't I sort of continue in the vein we've been we've been going down mm-hmm. here, which is um, you know, that notion of expectation setting and and goal setting, right? I I I, I don't know for a fact that there's um I think this is a section on, on, on Bill Maher's current show. Um, you know, I don't know it for a fact, but I'm pretty sure it's true, right? So I, I, I think this is something, you know, James Clear, one of those people who studies habits or something of that has talked about. Um, uh, you know, the, the benefit, um, the sort of joy that you can attend to setting goals, right? If you look upon this as not kind of big sigh, oh my God, how many leads do I have to sign up to, Right. Get past that, right? Find the joy in collaboratively setting goals because, you know, the fun thing, at least at least for me and I think for many people who, um, you know, experience some degree of success is saying, okay, we're going to do this. And then you put some effort and then there's some things that happen well, some things don't happen well, but eventually you get there. And if you're you're winning more than you're losing, and by winning I mean succeeding at doing what you said you were going to do, Right, um, that that itself can be a really joyous process. So I think I think that that to me is number one, which is um, you, you need to experience. And, and this I'm probably speaking to anyone who's um, you know wants to be out of marketing, or, or really I think it applies to any function, but certainly marketing um, it has their first real 
marketing team, lead head of marketing, role, what have you. Um, relish, enjoy goal setting and relish and enjoy it publicly with people out loud throughout the company um, so that it's a constant conversation. And then, of course, you know, the obvious stuff, once you, you set those goals collaboratively and cooperatively, stick to them, understand how you're going to measure them, um, be forthright and honest and high bandwidth in terms of the data around achievement or non-achievement of those goals, and keep on going with that and just keep on doing it and doing it, doing it again. Yeah, and I'm curious. So I know in the startup world, right, things are constantly changing. So how have you approached goal setting in environments where things are just constantly changing, the product's changing, the market's changing? How have you dealt with goal setting as an executive in those types of environments? Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's several different types of ways and, and reasons um, why, by, by which that changes, right? So, um, you know, one is the typically happy reason that there's there's new technologies, right? And Anyone in marketing, you know, in, in the past 10, 20 years, you know, has experienced this just explosion of, of data uh, and information and the sort of trackability of things and the analytics behind stuff. Uh, I'm a big believer in the, you know, sort of Malcolm Gladwell concept of the, the blink dashboard, like, you know, what are the five, six, ten metrics I really need to pay attention to? Um you know, it's it's very easy to start off saying, okay, it's it's marketing qualified leads. No, it's really marketing qualified accounts. Well, no, it's sales qualified leads. So, you know, you constantly like what 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 can we measure? Then should that also be the goal, right? Uh, you want to make your final metric close to the cash register, right? Ideally, marketing is trying to drive revenue, right? We may not be the team that is directly selling. Um, but we should be as close to the tip of the spear with sales, at least in terms of, you know, our, our objective as possible. On the other hand, you don't want to be so close that, you know, what are you really doing? You're just, just riding on their coattails and, you know, how, how do you actually assess marketing, marketing's performance, right, towards that tip of the spear. So that's, that's one way in which I think, you know, the, the, what you're managing yourself to has sort of evolved over the years and, and there's not a place that I've, I've worked uh, in the past 20 years that, you know, during the tenure, it's like somebody brings in, you know, a, a vendor, or I hear about it from a trade show or someone, like I said, it works for me, knows more about this, says, hey, we should be doing this, right? You know, it's, oh, we've got this new platform that is, you know, super understanding how we how we do lunch and learns where we send them food and they come in, we can really track everything at the degree, we should use that, that should be a metric, how many lunches have been, you know, so you got you to know how to manage that. Um, the other way in which this can become a moving target, and this is, can be less happy, um, can be either due to um, market conditions or individual company performance where something's not happening, right? And suddenly, and this is usually typically above my level, but the, the, the team, the CEO with the board is saying, hey, we, we missed this quarter, we got to make it up for it, or we got to reset the plan or what have you, um, that you know, that, there's a host of reasons why that can happen, and that's also something, obviously, you, you contend with, which is just sort of changes in what the company pl- promises to, to deliver. And how often does that ha- has that happened in your career, where you'll set a plan, a quarterly plan, annual plan, and you've had to change it? Is it most of the time? Is it some of the time? I'm curious. I feel like listeners would really benefit from hearing about that in terms of startup. <laughs> uh, 
geez, I feel like if I say most of the time, I sound like an idiot, but if I say some of the time, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's frequent, you know, I mean, look, my, again, my, where I, what, what I enjoy is I, I enjoy, um, launching new things. I enjoy new approaches. You know, I was, you mentioned Prasado, which is generative AI before it was called generative AI. Um, Zigma Labs, which is most recently, which is doing, you know, disinformation research and uh, security as it manifests in narratives, right? What, you know, is, is a brand or government entity stable based on what people are saying about it? How do we know and track and stuff? So it's, it's, I tend to go for, um, very, um, progressive, I used the term novel before technologies. And so, yeah, there is resetting, right? There's, there's like, Hey, it it turns out, uh, this customer segment is not ideal. It's that customer segment, right? There is some, learning that happens and that's not just learning at the level of marketing campaigns so it turns out this website stinks for generating leads and that website is fantastic um that also happens at kind of a, a larger level too so um there's always fine tuning i think the question is is the speed at which you make those decisions and um you know h- how far down the wrong <laughs> the wrong track you go before you change it at what cost, right? And this is, this is a sort of great question in, in, in sort of planning and really a great question in life, which is you're going down a road, right? And you're trying to get somewhere. You think it's ahead. How do you know when you haven't arrived at that destination yet? Um, is it a matter that I, I need to go a little longer on the same way, in the same route and direction? Or do I need to change direction, right? Would it have been actually, I should have made a left already? Or actually, no, you, you really want to keep going. And that, I mean, that, that takes data and that takes experience and that takes insight and that, that also takes some luck. For sure. And, and I, wa- I wanted to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier, David, which is that you've worked at companies or, you know, there are companies that don't have competition. Sometimes they've limited competition. For people that work at companies that don't have competition and they're really creating a new category, let's say you're a founder or, or a marketing exec at one of these companies, what advice would you give these leaders to most effectively educate the market? Like what insights have you gained from working at your companies about educating the market about a product that has not existed yeah. in the past? Well, I am a big believer in, in kind of the you know problem-solution notion, right, in, in, a, in a business frame. Uh, and, and most of my experience is, is B2B software. Um, you know, high level of SaaS and, 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 and things like that, but done a little bit of consumer here and there and, 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 you know, things directly to individuals, but mostly I've been selling to businesses and large businesses at that. Um, you have to have something you're solving. So if you don't have a direct competitor, if you can't say we are the blank of blank, right? We are, we're like them, but we're better than them because we do this, right? If you, if you can't directly posit that this is addressing something they already know they have this problem and then therefore probably have existing competitors, but you're doing it in a novel way and better than how they're doing it today, how they're doing it with that competitive solution, then you have to create a kind of straw man, quote unquote, competitor in the form of the cost of you not doing this, right? So what you never want to do and be in a position of, of going to an enterprise and saying, hey, look, you should spend $2 million or $200,000, whatever your price point is, $20,000 with us because your life's going to be better. It's going to, you know, it's going to be easy. Like it, the bar is, is, is beyond ease and better and feeling good. Don't get me wrong. That's actually, I think more important to be to be marketing than people realize, but ultimately 
if they there if it is truly novel to the point that there aren't competitors, right? If you are not using a generative AI solution and it's you know ten years ago and it was just kind of coming out like the notion of wait using computers to write language, you know, or uh, you know what happens to you say in the, in the, in the brand case and in, in the sort of narrative case I was talking to, um, you know what happens when people start to think your company is awful, right? You know what happens when people start to be concerned um, about your brand, right? You have to quantify that and say, look, this is the problem that you didn't realize was solvable, but there is a real cost of that. So the competition, so to speak, is the cost of not addressing this. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great way to think about it. So basically, you have to focus on the problem and make it more of a oh, I can't live without this, rather than how it makes my life better. So focus, you're saying focus more on the negatives of not having the product, um, rather than the positives of it being making your life a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I, right I, I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it look, it, there's a lot of good research that says that people are motivated by fear <laughs> over <laughs> happiness in, in, in a way, and, and, and avoidance of threat. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Andrew Uberman's podcasts lately and, and you know, am, am thoroughly convinced by his arguments. I mean, the sort of wired, hardwired neurology of, of what it takes to keep you safe, right? There's, there's always um, threats and you just miss one saber-toothed tiger and that's it, you're dead. Versus, you know, a chance at a tasty meal, there'll kind of always be a chance of a tasty meal. So um, the, the notion being that, you know, at, at, a, at a basic neurological level, um, there's a primacy on avoiding threat. So I, I, I won't say that it's, um, you know, exclusively selling to fear. I think, I think it's about identifying a threat and saying how we protect you from that. Right. So I think there's, there is a good feeling attendant with, right. You know, okay, great. I've, I've avoided that saber tooth tiger, um, data disaster, heart attack, whatever you're trying to market in whatever space. Right. Um, it's just a question of tying that feel good, I fixed it feeling to a real quantifiable um, problem that needed to be addressed. Yeah, that's great, David. And so one other question I had for you is, it seems like, you know, just based on our conversation, you're a pretty wide ranging thinker. It seems like you, like you mentioned James Clear, you mentioned Andrew Huberman. So I'm curious about for execs that are you know, trying to develop as leaders, what would you recommend uh, in terms of resources for them outside of their day job, whether that's podcasts, books, uh, educational resources, what would you recommend for them to consume to help them become better leaders at startups? You know, that is a great question. Um, I, I think the most important thing to consume and consume is maybe not the best verb here, um, is, um, relationships with others. Uh, you know, frankly, and, and, and Karen, I'm not just saying this because, you know, you happen to be the head of Exacor and, and are doing that. But I think, <laughs> honestly, having peers and colleagues of all type, whether it's the same level but a different function, whether it's the same function but a different level, older, younger, more experienced, less experienced, people you've worked with, um, is absolutely critical. So what I would say you consume, so to speak, is conversation and dialogue with others who have been down that road or similar roads and can tell you how that hand how they've handled it because when you're when you're learning from other people as opposed to you know I took this great course and now I know you know how to work whatever uh, super expert now at Google Analytics and becoming a SEO expert you know that's awesome you're developing skills you need skills that's fine um, but 
the the judgment part of it and you know when to use which skills and when to rely on which data and how to make decisions and how to how to manifest decisions the single thing i think that grows that capacity um that that develops the capacity for managing and being with people being in relationship with people really is more experience being in relation with people and, and 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 working with people so find support in in all forms from actually human beings talking to you one-on-one in groups whether it's a, a community such as the Nexacor, your own network, uh, you know, now we're kind of coming out of COVID, actually going out for coffee with 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 a friend or a colleague or what have you. I I think that's the most critical thing you can do to really develop your skill set and and to kind of keep yourself fresh. And when at what point in your in your career did that insight happen for you? Did you always know that even coming into the workforce, like okay, I'm going to focus on building relationships with peers, or was there a certain point where you started to lean on support with from your network more and more? I, you know, I, um, I probably instinctively sort of natively am more of of a um, collaborative person. I, I I I like people. I I you know I I, I just as a young kid you know those homework assignments where you sort of go to your room and you do something by yourself versus you know now you're on a team in a science lab and the, the three of you have four of you have to figure this out how to this you know i've always enjoyed the kind of collaborative approach more so i think it was just you know at a certain point um fairly early in my career where i realized this this tendency this preference to gather people and throw ideas together was kind of a strength and and was kind of a way to figure out my way right and the other thing with this is it's 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 almost um it's 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 a little bit like science right you you, you sort of get to a point where you know a good scientist right relishes finding out that they're wrong right i mean that's the way science should be done it's you you don't come in absolutely certain that this is the case you know, if it really is the case, then you don't need to do the experiment, right? You, you, you're trying to find out is this true, and you do it via negativa, and you try and constantly disprove what you're positing, right? If you have that attitude, if, and this is often called like a fixed versus growth mindset, if you have the attitude of genuinely enjoying when you're wrong, right, which can be developed, can it can be sort of grown that that sense, and you're doing it with and through people, the quality of your ideas for any given project or launch or product or marketing initiative. And the the depth and breadth of your skill set in terms of working with people is just by definition going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the one reason that it's not more common is like egos get involved, right? You're scared to be wrong. You're scared to be vulnerable with your team. And that's how ideas can kind of get suppressed and you can't just try and have open dialogue and try things, right? So how do you recommend, especially for younger professionals listening that are worried about, you know, their ego or worrying about other people knowing more than about more about certain topics than them? How can they engage in that sort of free flowing conversation, open dialogue and be more collaborative in the sense of in the sort of way that we're talking about? It's 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 framing. And admittedly, it's it's framing that gets easier as you, as you get more experience. Right. So you have to you have to start off like recognizing like people are going to I mean, People are going to know more than you about stuff, right? Uh, not only in many cases haven't you done something before, um, whether it's you know manage a team this size or manage this function or what have you. Right? That's that's key in marketing, right? Most people in marketing who who become heads of marketing, 
tend to have come from one of three of them. Maybe they, they were more in kind of Marcom and corporate marketing and are really great storytellers. Maybe they're more of a product person and they came out of product management into product marketing or they've, they've, they worked on the user side and they understand like how this product works and its benefits. Or maybe they're more of a, a sort of analytical research person or a salesperson. They're more, they find themselves in demand generation, which is this whole other way of looking at things. And, you know, inevitably, you're going to get to a point where you're in charge of marketing and you were really good at one of these things I talked, talked about before, but you're not good at these other things. So even the people on your team are going to know more than you about this stuff. So you've got to start with, with embracing the framing that I, I don't know the answers. If you, if you, if you recognize, and you got to be honest and say, I'm having meetings with people, my peers, people who work for me, my boss, the, the VCs, investors, what have you. And I'm constantly thinking, oh, they're going to find out I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, again, at this point in my career, I mean, sure, I, I need to show a certain amount of, I, I, I do know something about software, I do know something about marketing, I do know something about analytics and, and what have you. That's that's table stakes. But most people do know that or you probably wouldn't have gotten the job. Um, but if you are showing not, look how much I know, but look how much I can do and have gotten done and can get done because look how good I am at finding answers, right? People in this industry, and by this industry, I mean, I mean the tech industry, right? We're, we're innovators by definition. Um, I, th I think we're very open to the notion of finding things out, right? And someone who positions his sort of expertise and value not in what he knows, but what he or she can come to know, what he or she is capable of knowing, it's a subtle difference that I think a makes you a lot more credible, and and B gives you more confidence actually in a way. So that that would be how I'd handle that is sort of sort of welcome. Hey, I don't know. I'm going to find out. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that really enhances credibility. If someone just is very confident in themselves and say, "Yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out," rather than say an answer or kind of project something that's just inaccurate. So yeah, I completely agree, David. And so I want to ask one last question. So I know that you're currently um, a consultant, which is very interesting because uh, we haven't had a consultant on in the podcast before, but a lot of the people listening are, you know, again, execs, early stage execs at uh, high growth companies. And a lot of them are considering going the consulting route. So I'm curious, based on your experience as a consultant, how would you recommend for those that haven't taken that path before, how should they think through the decision of staying an operating executive versus being a consultant in their function? Yeah, I mean, you know, my my background, I mean, I've gone back and forth. I tend to do a, a role. I'm with a company two, three years. Um, it gets acquired or what have you changes in some fundamental way. Um, and then I tend to consult for a year or two and then I go back and, and, and I, I sort of enjoyed both phases. Um, there's pluses and minuses of both. Um, I think if someone is actively looking to be a consultant, I think, I think there's a couple of questions to ask, which is like, what, what are you consulting on? Right. Um, I know this is, it's, it's, it's sort of popular these days to talk about like being a fractional CMO. You know, I, I provide marketing leadership and all that. And that's, that's interesting. Um, companies may or may not be looking for leadership. <laughs> um, leadership is something you need. What they're probably looking for, especially from a consultant, is, is some set of results, right? So be really clear on, on you know, what it is that your leadership um, achieves. What are the results you can promise? Can you promise, um, you know, more, more leads? Can you promise a better product market fit? Can you promise better mindshare and awareness? 
um, what are the types of deliverables, what are the types of resources you need, what are the type of customers that are the best opportunity for you. Be super clear on that, figure that out. And then the other super practical thing is like have an anchor client. Um, you know, most people who move into a period of consulting or, you know, whether that's, you know, I have, I have some friends who like me were VPs of marketing 20 years ago and they became a consultant and never looked back and they have their own small company now. And it's, you know, three or four or six people. Um, and all they do is, 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 is work, uh, on that basis, contract basis with multiple companies at any given one time and they love it. And I have other people who are, you know, more like me, they kind of go back and forth, um, when you're going to kick off into that phase, it, it helps to have, uh, one client who is going to be, uh, providing you whatever it's half time, third time or what have you. So you have sort of a starting point with something and it just sort of a practical thing. It's, it's challenging, especially in this market to kind of start from scratch and saying, Hey, here's my Shinglama consultant. Who have you consulted with? No one. They've all the jobs. Okay, great. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, it's going to take you some time to get that, that first client, but, um, as a whole other topic than spend time is how you balance that. Cause you, you have these sort of feast of famine periods where it's like you're, you, you're turning down clients because you just can't really in good faith take something else on. And there's other times when you, you need more clients. So it's, it's, it's rarely that you have the optimal amount. Uh, it's always a little bit too much or a little too little, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, David, I really appreciate you coming on. I think this episode was full of great insights for up-and-coming leaders in tech and startups. Uh, the tactics you mentioned around just being authentic as a leader along with uh, the the shift to consulting versus being an operating executive, along with the insights in your career path. I feel like this has been awesome. So I really appreciate you coming on, David. Absolutely. Happy to help. If anyone has any questions, they can feel free to contact me. I'm happy to give um, you know free advice, which hopefully is worth more than the cost. Um, or anyone who has any questions about anything we've, we've talked about today. Great. And we'll put your contact information in the show notes. So thanks again, David. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too.